Okay, if you got your Bible and you want to follow along, we are in Genesis chapter 24. Um, it is a, uh, if you've ever wondered what is the longest chapter in Genesis, it is this one. Uh, it is 67 verses and we're only going to get through 27 of them uh, today. The title of our lesson is A Lesson in Guidance. Now, uh, the entire chapter is devoted to one story uh, or one thing. And that is the process of finding a wife for Isaac. So Abraham has a son named Isaac, and they want to find him a wife. And this whole chapter is dedicated to this very uh, thing. Now, you would think that if we're coming to a chapter, and we're going to be talking about uh, finding a wife for a man, we, you would think that the, the principles we would get out of this would be principles dealing with love or marriage or dating and those kind of things. And and there is some of that in here, and we will touch on those next week. But it turns out, you know, the fact is, as I come in, there, there's really two things in this chapter you can teach on. That's one. And the fact is, when I look around, most of us in here are probably already married. And so we, you know, we don't need that as much, I think, as we need this other thing. And it turns out, so I'm going to focus on this other thing. And the other thing that comes out of this chapter is I don't know if there's a better chapter in the Old Testament or really even in the Bible that illustrates to us how God guides. I don't think there's a, a better chapter in, in the Bible that illustrates to us how God guides and how we should seek His guidance. And so that's what we're going to focus on uh, today. So if you have a decision to make, and we all do, right? We all come up against decisions every single day, some big, some small. Uh, it turns out that this chapter has some excellent, I mean excellent examples of, um, of how to seek God's guidance. And so that's what we're going to uh, focus on this morning. Let's begin in verse 1, Genesis 24.1. It says, Now Abraham was old and he was well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed him or blessed Abraham in all things. So you may wonder as we come to chapter 4, exactly how old is Abraham as we're starting this chapter? Well, it doesn't tell us here. It just says he's old. Uh, but we actually know how old he is. So we all know back in uh, Genesis 17, the Bible told us that uh, Sarah was 90 when Abraham was 100. And we know that, right? And we know also from Genesis 21 that that is the age that they had Isaac. When Abraham was a hundred and Sarah was ninety, uh, they had they had a son named named Isaac, which was of course a miracle. Now we know from the last chapter that Sarah died at 127. That's how old she was. Now that would have meant Abraham was 137 when she died, and Isaac would have been 37 when she died. Now we will find out in the next chapter that Abraham is 40. When he marries Rebecca, so three years have passed uh, since uh, since Sarah died. So Abraham is roughly 140. There's a there's a little trip that's got to be made to go find Rebecca and bring her back, and and that trip probably took several weeks or maybe a few months. So Abraham's 140. We know Isaac is 40, and when this chapter opens, Sarah has been dead three years. So we know exactly how old they are when this chapter. Starts Now, Abraham is going to live to be 175. So his death is still 35 years away. But, of course, he doesn't know that, right? He doesn't know when he's going to die. But he's getting on up there. His Sarah has died. His wife's just died. He knows he's getting older. 
And so he begins to make preparations for his passing. And there's one thing that's on his to-do list. There's one thing that's at the very top of his to-do list, and that is finding a wife for his son. Now, you may wonder, well, why? Why is that such a, a big deal? Why don't he just let nature take its course and, and let it happen when it happens? Well, it turns out that Isaac needs a wife in order for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Okay, let me say it again. Isaac needs a wife in order for the promises of God to be fulfilled. First of all, God has promised, I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you descendants like the stars of the sky, right? So Isaac has to have children. Well, in order to have children, you got to have a wife. So that's just, that's just natural, right? I mean, the, the boy needs to get married. But not just any woman, he needs to marry a godly woman. Now, why is that? Because it turns out that it's crucial for the promises of God to be fulfilled that Isaac has to continue to walk in the ways of the Lord. In other words, it's not enough that his daddy did it. He has to do it. And so, in fact, look at Genesis 18. I'll read this very quickly. This is God speaking about Abraham. It says this, For I have chosen him in order that he may command his, who? His children, which is Isaac, and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham. Everybody see the link there? So if Abraham and his and Isaac and his children and on down, if they keep doing righteousness and justice, if they keep walking in the ways of the Lord, God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer all these promises. I'm gonna produce all these. Everybody see the link there. So Abraham knows that. He knows, okay, I need this boy to keep walking in the ways of the Lord in order to, that these promises may be fulfilled. Now, he, to do that, he decides, I need a godly woman. Because he understands the effect a woman, a wife can have on a man. By the way, he's dealt with that himself in his own life, hasn't he? How, what, what started the whole Ishmael Hagar thing? It wasn't Abraham, it was, it was Sarah. So he knows the kind of effect that a godly wife can have on a godly man, and he knows if, if he married an ungodly woman, that could have an effect as well. So he wants to make sure, not just any wife, but he has a godly wife. So he, he, gives his servant a commission. Look at verse 2. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Now, a couple things. Who is this servant? We don't know. In fact, in this whole chapter, this servant is, is never named. Now, it could be that this servant is a man named Eliezer of Damascus. You remember back in Genesis 15, uh, before Abraham had any kids didn't have Ishmael, didn't have Isaac. And he comes to the Lord and he says, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? So he had this servant. In that day, if you didn't have kids, you would the you could choose one of your servants, kind of adopt that servant, and he would become the heir of all that you have. So there was a time when Abraham had chosen this servant named Eliezer. So he must have been a very trusted servant, a very loyal servant. Now, whether this is the same servant or not, we don't know. It very well could be or very well could be somebody else. Because this was, this, you know, this was probably made, this statement was probably made about 50 plus years ago. Regardless, he says to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Now, what does that mean? Well, that was a way in that culture to swear. And if that seems really weird, 
that you would put your hand under somebody's thigh to swear. It's no different than raise your right hand. Why do we raise our right hand? I got no clue. Anybody? Raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. It's just a culture thing. We raise our hand to swear. They would put their hand under somebody's thigh to swear. Seems weird to them. If it pro- Raising our right hand would probably seem weird to them, just like that seems weird to us. So it's just a cultural thing. So he says, put your hand under my thigh and swear, verse 3, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, there are three stipulations in this commission that Abraham is going to give to his servant. Number one, she cannot be a Canaanite. Okay, that's in verse 3. Number two, she has to come from my kindred, my family. Okay, I need you to go back to Mesopotamia and I need you to find a woman from among my kindred. That's number two. The third stipulation is this. Whatever happens, do not allow Isaac to go back there. Okay, look at verses four, uh, 5 through 9. So the servant said to him, well, well, maybe the woman may not be willing to come back with me. What if I find somebody and she won't come back? Um, he says, must I then take your son back to her? Okay, that's what he's asking. It's a, it's a reasonable question. If she won't come back with me, can I take your son to her, And Abraham says this in verse 6. See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. Now, it turns out that there are going to be four people in this story that need guidance from God, four people. The first one that we are introduced here to is Abraham. And we can learn an awful lot from his actions, and we're going to learn an awful lot from the actions of the servant here today. So here's the question before Abraham, right? How do I find a wife for Isaac? He needs guidance, does he not? How do I find a wife from Isaac? Now here's what I want you to see. First and foremost, Abraham's actions are based upon revelation, and that is the Word of God, okay? See, God has has verbally promised to Abraham, I'm going to do two things for you, Abraham. This is my promise to you. Number one... I'm going to make you a great nation through your son Isaac. I'm going to you look at look up in the sky. If you can number the stars, you'll be able to number your your descendants. I'm going to make you. I'm going to give you lots of grandchildren and great grandchildren and great 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 grandchildren and all the way down the road. That's number one. But they are going to be based in the land of Canaan. This is where this nation is going to be birthed, and this is going to be your land. Everybody with me? Two promises. A lot of, a lot of great children, grandchildren and great, great grandchildren, but they're going to be based in this land. That is what he knows from Revelation. Everybody with me? That's what God told him. So, while finding Isaac a wife is not a specific command, God didn't come down to him and say, hey man, you need to find that boy a wife. He knows it's the will of God because again, how's he going to produce children without a wife? So, he infers it from Revelation that Isaac, number one, needs to marry. Number two, Isaac needs to stay there. Is everybody with me? That, that's just coming from the promises of God. That's what he knows from Revelation, okay? 
By the way, no different from us. We can open the Bible and we can read the Word of God and we know exactly what God said and we know exactly what God told us to do. Now, the problem is that is the extent of his knowledge. That's all he knows. So although he knows it's the will of God to find Isaac a wife, and he knows it's the will of God for, for Isaac to, to stay in that land, he has no idea specifically how to find a wife. He has no idea specifically who this wife is going to be. So what does he do? Okay? What does he do? Does he fall down and say, Lord, I need a vision of this. I need her name. Give me her name. Tell me, tell me exactly where, where... Does he do that? No, he doesn't do that at all. See, what he does, he uses wisdom. He uses the mind God gave him. He uses wisdom. He says, okay, the first thing is she can't be a Canaanite. Again, this is just, a, it's just wisdom. Look, if I, get a, if I get a pagan woman to marry, there's going to be problems. She's going to try to turn him to her religion, and, and, and that's, that's going to be a bad thing. So can't be a Canaanite. Number two, go back to my family. It's the best, the best place I can tell you to go is go to my family because they have beliefs like I do. They have values like I do. Go back there. And number three, whatever you do, don't let him leave this land. Because if he leaves this land and goes to her, he ain't coming back. What does the Bible, what does Genesis say? Therefore a man shall leave his mother and his father and cleave to his wife. If he ever goes back to Mesopotamia and cleaves to that woman, he ain't coming back. Right? So he says, do not let him leave. That's just wisdom. It's not, a, it's not a command from God. It's just wisdom. Don't let him go because if he does, he's not coming back. And now the third thing he does is he relies on the providence of God and the guidance of God. Verse 7, he said, look, go back to my country and he will send his angel before you. God will be there with you. He'll guide you. He'll, he'll direct you through providence. So number one, he relies on revelation. Number two, he relies on his own wisdom. Number three, he relies on the providence of God. Now, I want you to see something, though. His faith is not presumptuous. He, he's used the best wisdom he can to tell his servant what to do, but he allows for the possibility that what I'm planning may not work. Okay? Because I'm doing the best I can, but it may not work. Remember what he said, but if the woman is not willing... If she won't come back, don't take him there. We'll figure something else out. We'll, we'll go to plan B. We'll do something else. But whatever you do, don't let him go there. So again, I love that because he's not, he doesn't figure out, you know, this is the best plan ever, anybody's ever come up with, right? He, he uses his wisdom. He does the very best he can, but he doesn't presume that this is, this is the way it's got to go. Everybody see that? And I think there's some great guidance in there for us. So, he sends the servant off, and the search begins. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Nahor is Abraham's brother. Remember, we saw that in the last chapter. So he's got this brother named Nahor, who he's heard has got lots of boy. He's had lots of sons, and those sons have had daughters. And so he thinks, boy, this is a great place to send him back to. So they go back to Mesopotamia. Now, I don't know if y'all remember, Mesopotamia means the land between two rivers. It's the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. It's known as the Fertile Crescent. It's the land where Abraham came out of. And you remember when we, when we went over all this, uh, Abraham was way down there on the Persian Gulf. And he, instead of going across the desert to the land of Canaan, you would actually go up the trading routes. Everybody remember us talking about that? 
you'd go up to a place called Haran, which is where Abraham's fathers died, and then you'd come about another 400 miles down to Shechem or down to uh, the land of Israel. So for this guy to go back, he's got at least a journey of 400 miles to get back up there. And I don't, whether, whether the city of Nahor, we don't know where that was exactly, whether it was Haran or whether it was Ur of the Chaldees, we don't know. So we know he's got a journey of probably a minimum 400 miles, probably a, a maximum of 1,000 miles. So he takes off on this journey. Now, I want to put ourselves for a moment in his shoes. Abraham, your boss, your master, your employer, has given you a commission. I want you to go back to Mesopotamia, go to my people, um, and I want you to find a wife. Now, this is the second person in our story that needs guidance, and he's, he needs it more than anybody, because the fact is Abraham has told him, uh, he's kind of giving him some broad guidelines, go back and find the wife, but he didn't say, I want a blonde or a brunette or fat or skinny or big or tall. or He didn't give him any specifics at all, right? It's just this, it's just this broad kind of thing right here, right? So he's got to go find the wife, and here's the question in front of him. It's not just how to find a wife, it's how to find the wife. He's not just looking for any woman, he's looking for the woman that God has picked out for, for Isaac. So for him, it's even, this is even a bigger deal, right? Abraham kind of said, man, go, go do your job and do the best you can, right? And, and this guy's got to go get it done. But he's got no specifics, he's got no, nothing to really go by. He doesn't have a sheet he can look at and say, does she match this or anything? He needs guidance from, from God. So what would you have done? Think about it for a second. You, you've been given that. What would you do? So let's say we come to the city. Maybe we go into the city and we say, hey, have you heard about this uh, guy named Nahor? Yeah, he, they live over here. And maybe you go to their family and say, hey, I need you to bring all the eligible women and let's have a beauty contest, right? And we're going we're gonna to put them through these. You know, is that how you do it? Or, or, or maybe you get a, a list of the women and you go interview them and you ask them some questions. What do you think about this? And what's your feelings on this? Or maybe that's all too worldly for you, and you would do it, you would do it real spiritually. You would maybe look for a, God, I need a voice from heaven. Or maybe you'd say, I need the angel to kind of come down and put a halo over her head, so I'll know that's her. Or, or, or maybe you look for a sign, who knows? But the point would be, how would you do it? Well, he didn't do any of those things. And, and what, and his plan is, is brilliant, really, when you think about it. It's, it's an amazing thing that he does. And, and his actions give us some excellent guidance on how to seek uh, guidance, or give us guidance on how to seek guidance from God. In fact, this servant, you could do a study on him. He serves as a great example for believers of any age. His loyalty, his commitment, his wisdom. He, he's, a, he's a great guy actually to, to study. So here's what he does, verse 11. So he comes to the city. He doesn't even go in the city. He makes the camels kneel down outside the city, by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women would go out to draw water. Now, this is really smart, right? He, does, he thinks, you know what? And, and by the way, he's had hundreds of miles to think about this. So he thinks when he gets there, he thinks, you know what? I don't, why should I go find them? Let them come to me. So he just, he just sits down by the well of water. Now, again, I want you to notice he's, how much this guy uses wisdom. Wisdom is going to come up over and over and over. There's a reason Abraham chose this guy. Because he was full of, of wisdom. So what he does, he puts himself in the right spot to observe the women as they come out to, to get water. Now, he's in the right spot. Now he's got to find the right woman. 
Okay, now how's he going to do that? Because here's the thing about this guy. He's not just interested in seeing her outside. He's not just interested in what she looks like on the outside. He's interested in what's going on, on the inside. I mean, this guy is, he, when, he, when you give him something to do, he's going to go 110%. He's not just going to find the first good-looking woman that walks out the gate. He, he wants to know what her character is like. So he comes up with a plan, and it is a brilliant plan. But he also understands that wisdom can only take you so far. See, I believe God wants us to walk in wisdom. I think God gives us wisdom. In fact, James 1.5 says, If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men what? Liberally. You want wisdom? God wants you to walk in wisdom. He wants to give you wisdom in how to do things. And this guy has got it. But wisdom will only take you so far. And this guy knows that. So the very first thing he does is he prays. And everybody in here, I hope, will recognize this prayer. He said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now, when I say you should recognize this prayer, what I mean is this. This is the prayer I pray every time I took a test in college. This is the prayer I pray every time I get up to preach. And the prayer is basically this. God, I have done everything I know to do. I've studied. I've, 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 I've done my best. Now it's up to you. Are you with me? I hope you all pray that prayer. Because there are times when we've done everything we do, we know to do. We've, done our, we've walked in wisdom. We've studied. We've done everything we know to do. And now we turn to God and say, now God, you bless it. Because success in the end comes from you and you alone, not me. That's exactly what he's praying. God, I, here I am. I, I've, I've put myself in the right spot. I've done everything I know to do. Now you bless the plan. And what an awesome prayer that is, okay? So this is what he says, verse 14. Here's the plan. He gives it. He, now, by the way, he's still praying. He's giving this to God. He said, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who says back to me, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know. Okay, if she responds back to me, I'm going to water your camels also. He says, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So what he's doing is he's saying, okay, God, I want you to, this is going to be the sign that this is the right woman. If, If nobody does it, then this, you know, it don't work. But this is going to be the sign that this is the woman that you want me to take back to Abraham for Isaac. Now, in one sense, it seems like he's putting out a fleece, okay? And I'm, and I'm, and I'm referring to a story in Judges 6, which we'll get to in just a moment. It's like, like he's putting out a fleece. Now, I want to stop right here, because this is very important. And I want to ask the question, to fleece or not to fleece, okay? Now, how many of you here know what I'm talking about when I say a fleece? Okay? See, if you've been around church a long time, you know what a fleece is. Probably some of you have done it. I will not ask you to raise your hand. Some of you have done it, and the ones that hadn't done it have thought about doing it. Okay? And, but the other people may not know what that is. A fleece is from a story in the Bible, and we'll cover that in a minute. But it's a set of conditions that you put before the Lord. And say, Lord, if you meet these conditions, then I'll know this is what you want me to do. And, and by the way, these conditions can be absolutely stupid, right? For example, you, I, people might say, God, if this is your will, then let my mama make oatmeal instead of pancakes this morning. 
Seriously. God, if this is your will, then if you really want me to do this, then let a check for $800 be in my mailbox when I go out there this afternoon. This is the kind of things people do, by the way. Or if you really want me to go to India, then let me see a sign today with the words India in six-foot letters. Not five and a half. They've got to be at least six foot. Then I'll know that you want me to go to India. This is what's called a fleece. It's putting out a set of conditions in front of the Lord, and if he meets that, then you'll, you know, you'll, you'll know what that he wants you to do. Now... Let me say this, it seems, and why this is important, why I bring it up today, because it seems to me that in our search for guidance as Christians, we are drawn to formulas and methods. We are drawn to that. Now, why? Because it makes it easy. If that really worked, putting out a fleece, wouldn't that make finding the will of God easy? You wouldn't have to struggle. You wouldn't have to trust. You wouldn't have to use wisdom. You just put out these, if it passes, go. If it doesn't pass, don't stay. Everybody with me? We would love that. I mean, who wouldn't love that? It seems, if you think about it, like a foolproof way of staying in the will of God and not making a mistake. So here's the question. Does the Bible teach that putting out a fleece like this or putting out a set of conditions is a normal way of seeking God's guidance? Well, let's go back to the Scripture that actually talks about the fleece. And this is where we get the word fleece, or the or the, the why we call it a fleece. This is Judges 6, 36 through 40. And most of you, if you're here in church for a while, you know this story. But I want to read it to you. Then Gideon said to God, I'll stop right there. So there's this guy named Gideon, and he lives there in Israel. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and, and all these people are just, they're just raiding Israel and coming in and just treating them bad. It's a mess. And so God comes to Gideon and, and says, Gideon, I'm going to make you the leader of this army, and you're going to defeat those guys. And Gideon, he ain't so sure about this thing, right? He, he's, I mean, his first reaction is, is me? You, you, you want me to do it? I mean, he didn't have a lot of self-confidence. And this is what happened. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And in the morning when I get up, if there is dew on the fleece, but the ground is dry, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And he got up the next morning, and guess what? It was so. When he rose early the next morning and he squeezed the fleece, he, drew, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Now that's a miracle, isn't it? You get up and say, there's a fleece. And the ground is all dry, but the fleece is, you, you can wring water out of it. That's a miracle. But it wasn't a miracle enough for Gideon. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me, but let me speak just one more time. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. In the next morning when I get up, please let it be dry on the fleece only, and the ground let there be dew. And so God did so that night. And in the morning it was dry on the fleece, but the ground was wet with dew. So God does two miracles for him. Now, here's the thing. In a nutshell, it looks like what Gideon is saying. He's saying, Lord, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to put out a test for you, God. I'm going to put out a fleece. and if, I'm going to put out a set of conditions. And if you meet them, I'll know what to do. And, of course, God did what he asked. And Gideon went ahead and, and led the army. And they were victorious. Now, on its face, it looks like a, man, what a way to get guidance from God. That's a, that's, a, that's a foolproof way to get guidance from God. But it turns out that's not what it is at all. That's not what it is at all. In fact, look at the passage a little closer. Let me read it again. And I've highlighted the words I want you to see. 
Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, read it with me, as you have said, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand. Read it with me, as you have said. See, here's the thing, folks. Gideon admits twice that God's already told him what to do. He's not looking for God's will. He already knows it. Are you with me? He's not looking for God. He knows. God said twice, this is what I want you to do. This is what I'm going to do. So he's not looking for God. This, is, this has nothing to do with seeking guidance or seeking the will of God. He already knows the will of God. This is, this is a, he's just weak. He's just weak in faith. He doesn't trust God's Word. He couldn't just believe God's Word. He needs proof. I mean, basically what he wants to know is that God is, is in control of all circumstances, that God can actually change nature and do miracles. He needs that kind of proof before he can step out and do what he already knows God's told him to do. This is not a way to seek God's will. That's not what this story is all about. In fact, let me tell you this. This story isn't about seeking God's will. This story is really more about God's grace and God's mercy and God's patience with Gideon, more so than it has to do anything with seeking God's will. So let me tell you this. I don't think at all that's a model for seeking guidance. If you ever use that story and come to me and say, I th- well, Gideon did it. No, he didn't. That is not what he was looking for. He was, looking, he was just a weak man who was looking for, for absolute proof, and God was gracious enough to get it, give it to him. But we live in a different area. God has done multiple things for us. He sent his son to die on a cross and raised him from the dead. Why do we need other? I mean, we just trust him. Trust his word. He's never let us down. I don't want to be like Gideon. I don't want to have to result to, to, to something like that in order to find guidance. Look at verse 14. He says it again. So let, I want you to see the test he's putting out. And I want to show you the difference between him and Gideon. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink and I will water your camels. By this I shall know. So you see, this, I don't think this is a fleece at all. And there's a huge difference between what Gideon did and what the servant did. Gideon is testing God. Now listen to me. The servant is testing the woman. Remember, he's looking for a woman not just of beauty, but of character. So what he's doing here is he's not testing God. He knows what... He's not doubting God. He's not dictating to God. Yeah, God, this is what I want you to do. He's just saying, hey, this is my plan. And if the plan works, this woman is going to show her character. And it's going to be the one. I'm going to know by that that this is the one that you have chosen. So I don't think this is a fleece at all. So here's his plan. His plan is to ask this water, give me water for me. That's his plan. He's not going to ask for the camels. He's not going to ask for the rest of the caravan. And if she responds by going the extra mile, he would know that God has answered his prayers. Okay. Now, here's the thing. She can do the minimum. She can just give him water and go about her, go about her day. Or she can go the extra mile and show that she is a woman of character. Now, remember... This is what he's looking for. He's looking for character. Now, you may say, well, what in the world has, has watering camels got to do with character? There's 10 camels. A, a thirsty camel can drink 20 gallons of water. That's 200 gallons of water to, 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 to give it to 10 camels. 200 gallons. I don't know that pot what she's got, but I'm guessing it ain't a 200-gallon pot. We're not talking about one trip, right? So here's a woman 
who if she's going to water the camel, she's going to have to go back time and time and time and time again to fill that trough to water those camels. And by the way, that requires a woman with a servant's heart, not a self-centered heart. Rebecca is a beautiful case. We're going to talk about this this next week. We're going to look at some principles in, in, in marriage. And she's a beautiful case. There's, a, there's something we used to teach to young people. If, you wanna, if, you wanna, if you're looking for the right one, be the right one. If you're looking for the right one, then you need to be the right one that that right one is looking for. You think about it that way. You're looking for the right one. There's somebody out there that's looking for the right one. Well, are you going to be the right one? Are you with me? I mean, she is just, she's a beautiful example of a woman with a servant's heart. And this guy comes up with this test and says, Oh, anybody would do that has to, be a, has to have a servant's heart. And by the way, self-centeredness is the root of all problems in marriage. It's the root of all problems in marriage. It's always self-centeredness. What do I want? What do I need? What do I think? And so if he, if, he can find a, not a, if he can find a woman that's got a servant's heart, then he knows she's going to make the very best. Not that they're not going to have problems. Not that, you know, she's absolutely perfect. But it's going to be the best combination that he can put together to make sure that, that she is the woman that Isaac needs in a, in a bride. What he does, by the way, he applies God's wisdom in seeking God's will. He applies God's wisdom in seeking God's will. It's a wonderful plan because it not only it, it combines wisdom with providence. God is going to bring her out, right? So he commits this plan to God in prayer. And by the way, before he even says amen, she's already walking out the gate. Look at verses 15 and 16. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, which is Abraham's brother, Abra- came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring, and she filled her jar, and she came up. So the first girl to come out of the gate is Rebecca, and she she checks three things off the list. Number one, she's good looking. I mean, if he'd have brought back an ugly woman, let's just be let's just be honest, right? I mean, that's not everything, but it sure helps, right? So she's good looking, check. She's a virgin, check. She's from Abraham's family, check. So so far, she's meeting all the criteria. Now the servant doesn't know this. He doesn't know at this point she's from Abraham's family. He doesn't know she's a virgin. He doesn't. All he sees is a good-looking woman comes out of the gate and goes down to get water. So it's the first one out. So he thinks, well, let's, let's put this plan in place, right? So he runs up to her, verse 17 and 18. Then the servant ran to meet her, and he said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Now, by the way, this would not be unusual. It would have been unusual for her not to give him one. In that day, any woman with a stranger would have stopped and said, yes, you know, sure, you can have some a drink. So, But she doesn't stop there. This is the test. She goes the extra mile, verses 19 and 20. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Probably somewhere up around 200 gallons. She goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. In fact, look at verse 21. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Now, this is a little odd, because you think about it. He said, the woman that says to me, I'll do it, she's the one. But she's already said that. So what's he, what's he gazing at her for? What's he waiting on? He's waiting for her to finish the job. 
See, it's easy to say, I'll do it. It's a whole other thing to actually do it. Right? Is she just saying this because she knows that's what I want to hear? Or has she literally got that kind of heart to go water all those camels? So he waits until she's completely done. And when they're all watered up and all done, he says, boy, she is, not only does she say it, she actually walks the walk. Verses 22 to 27. When the camels had finished drinking, that's what he was waiting on, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. And he said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, We've got plenty of straw, both straw and fodder, and room to spend the night. And the man bowed his head, and he worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Now I want to close with a couple of thoughts. Now we, we're right in the middle of the chapter. It turns out next week there's two more people or groups that need guidance. Number one is Rebecca's family. They love Rebecca. If she moves away, she's going to be moving hundreds of miles. They'll never see her again. So they have to know that they know that this is the right one. And you're going to see next week how they get that guidance. The, the other fourth one is, is Isaac. When, he, when, he, when she comes back, it's one thing that everybody else says she's the one. What about him? How does he know she's the one? See, it's critical, I think, going into a marriage. I'm not saying it's critical. I will say this. If you know that God has put that one in your life, it makes a ton of difference. See, I know in my life, I know Kathy's the one for me. I know it. I won't tell you how I know it because it's, that would be embarrassing. But, but I will tell you I know it, and that's made all the difference. It's the only thing, literally, it's kept me from killing her several times. No, just knowing that God is... <laughs> Has, and I'm not joking about that. You think I'm joking, but I'm really not. But knowing that she's the one that God has picked for you changes everything. Even in the hard times, you stand on that. This is the one. I don't know. I can't believe it right now, but I trust it, right? That makes everything. So Isaac is also going to need it. And we'll see that next week, how he gets that. A couple of closing thoughts. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I understand that knowing God's will and finding God's will is not a formula. It's not a formula. It's not as easy as putting out a fleece and say, you know, if mama makes pancakes this morning, I know you want me to witness that guy. That's, that's, that, that's not how it works. In fact, I can give you two things about uh, walking in God's will. It's really a matter of two things. Number one, obey the word. Obey the word. Obey the word. If the Bible says, this is my will for you, then do it or don't do it depending on what God says, Right? If he says, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers, that his will for you is not to marry an unbeliever. His will for you is to marry a believer, to be yoked with a believer. Now, you can choose to obey that or not choose to obey that. That's up to you. But the fact is, that's number one. When, when God's will is specific, his revelation is specific, then walk in it. That's number one. Number two, when it's not specific, then walk in the wisdom that God gave you. You know, you know what wisdom means, right? Wisdom is the ability to use knowledge rightly. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge and use it in the right way. And God has given us all wisdom. He's given us a brain. 
and He's given us a brain that can read the Word of God and find guidelines, and, and when He's not specific, we can figure out what's the best thing we can, can do. Those, that's really it. Obey His Word when it's specific and walk in the wisdom God gave you when it isn't. And number three, always bathe it in prayer. Just like Abraham said, look, I'm going to use the best wisdom I got, but I am not 100% sure that this is the way God wants us to go. Everybody with me? Sometimes our, you know, we think we're walking in wisdom, but that's not really what God wants us to do. Just ask God, God, if this isn't what you want me to do, you change it. You give me success or you give me for failure. You, you take care of this. I'm relying on your providence. I'm relying on your sovereignty. You see, when you do those three things, when you do those three things, when you obey His Word when it's specific, walk in wisdom when it isn't, and always cover it with prayer, trusting Him to providentially guide, let me tell you, you can know that God is going to be working behind the scenes to work out all aspects of your life. You will know that. You may not can see it. In fact, uh, um, Ryan and I were talking this morning about Joseph. Joseph goes up to Egypt and he's, he's accused of rape and he's thrown in prison for two years. Can you imagine? You try to do the right thing by, by running out of a woman's house and, and not, not sleeping with her and she accuses you of rape and they throw you in prison for two years. And, and two years, where's God? Everything about that situation says, God has abandoned me. God doesn't love me. God's forgot about me. Except the fact is that he trusts God. He has faith in God. And he knows that even in this bad situation, God is working. And sure enough, later on, his brothers come, and what does he say? You meant all this for bad, but God meant it for good. That was his attitude. See, this is where the attitude comes from. Obey God's word when it's specific, walk in wisdom when it isn't, and cover it in prayer, and you will know, absolutely know, that God is working both in the good times and the bad. When you do those three things, there are no coincidences. Trust me. No coincidences. I'll close with this. Uh, Psalms 37, 23 to 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. And though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Let's pray.